Welcome to Granite State Matters, the busy person's way to catch up with what's happening in Concord. Because the extremists are taking over the state house, And what you don't know can hurt you. I'm Steve Marchand. We are here today to talk about one of the most important topics, I think, for the next 10, 20 years in New Hampshire. But something we got to do something about today. And we've got some great guests who are focused on it. And that is the subject of making New Hampshire more family friendly. Uh, The Carsey Center at UNH, the University of New Hampshire, released a report uh, just in the last few days that got at what is New Hampshire. And one of the main findings, and perhaps we'll talk a lot more about this in an upcoming episode, but one of the primary findings was about the demography of New Hampshire and what it's going to mean for public policy, how we raise money, spend it, everything for decades to come. And one of the things it found is that we're getting older as a state, that the number of kids, school-age kids that we have in the state has collapsed over the last 20 years. And what it means for everything from where people live and the kind of services that they expect and require, these things are changing very rapidly now. New Hampshire is the second oldest state in the country. We've lost 20% of our school-age children population just this century in the last 20 or so years. So that was one of the main findings from that report. I think in the weeks and months to come, it's going to create a lot more attention on this matter. So I think we, we'd have a hard time coming up with a, a better time for this critical topic about making New Hampshire more family friendly. And that's what we're going to do today. And we've got some great guests uh, from great organizations who are going to help us explore this a little bit, help us understand where we are at now and how we get to a better place to start your family, raise your family here in New Hampshire. So first, let me introduce our guest today. We've got a pair of wonderful guests from New Futures, who we've had folks on from before, uh, Emma Savigny and Rebecca Wojtkowski, again, both from New Futures. And uh, we have Nathan Fink here as well from the Children's Trust. Um, we really appreciate all of you being here today and uh, look forward to the conversation. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Great Thank to you. be here. As we said right in the intro, I don't know if you've even had a chance to spend time with it today, but... Uh, UNH's Public Policy Center, the Carsey Center, releasing a report about the state of New Hampshire, our demography, and some pretty um, stark findings, including the fact we're the second oldest state in the country and we've seen a collapse in our in our younger population uh, that suggests that in terms of family friendliness, we've got a lot of work to do uh, and we need to get, a, uh, get ahead of it because this is generational impact. So let me start with this the state of being today. How is New Hampshire faring in terms of families? And what do the trend lines look like from your perspectives? My instinct to that question is always to say, great, amazing, never better. But uh, that that's the part of me that I think that reflexively answers that question with uh, cultural aversion to help seeking. You know, we're doing good, but the house is on fire kind of a thing. Um, you know, in light of that report, we do know, though, that families are strongest when they have certain things like access to concrete supports and social connection, among other things. And we're coming off, you know, a few uh, tough years of extreme isolation 
where our kids were not exactly free to develop the social emotional competencies that they had in years past. And now into what looks like challenging economic times, high inflation, a lack of childcare, kind of the graying of New Hampshire, like you had mentioned, and those things are additive. So how are New Hampshire families doing? Well, I, I would say we're digging deeper into our resilience reserves than we ever have, hopefully leaning on friends and family and our communities, while also acknowledging, I think that stressors, when stressors outweigh resources, we can run into challenges, like you mentioned. But there are resources available, and when they're made widely available and accessible, families have more opportunity to develop strengths. Coming off that, I live in the same space as you, Nathan, um, to always want to say, you know, New Hampshire families are thriving and well. And many reports uh, say that we are, but I think he is digging into the data of that. Um, many New Hampshire families are struggling, and to de the degree to which families are struggling really depends on both the region in which they live and their economic status. We know in well-resourced communities where parents are high-income earners, children and families fare better in health, wellness, and access to critical programming. However, that doesn't mean that those families aren't struggling as well, particularly when we think about mental health. However, we absolutely know in our under-resourced communities, many children and families are in crisis. And this data we had even before the pandemic, Kids Count reported on inequitable regional access to services throughout the state. The impacts of the pandemic only heightened disparities among communities. This is the result of many policies which place the burden on individual communities without statewide investment. It's really something that our lawmakers um, should be aware of when they consider legislation and policy implementation. You know, it's hard to say whether the state is trending um, in the right direction because many things are in limbo, um, particularly when it comes to services and programs that federal relief dollars have supported over the past two years. We know that New Hampshire may face a food scarcity crisis when enhanced federal benefits end. We also know that there may be an economic crisis due to skyrocketing housing costs and also the looming end to the pause on federal student loan payments. Additionally, the accessibility and affordability of childcare is a huge challenge for families. And childcare really impacts more women, more specifically than men, in terms of the ability to return and stay in the workforce. However, as Nathan kind of alluded to, I don't want to paint just a dark picture. The state has been working on um, improving access and addressing the challenges that families face. One great example I can speak to is the work to support family resource centers and the Children's Trust has worked in great partnership with the state and advocates on this. Um, the Children's Trust serves as a backbone entity to leverage and flow funding to communities to deepen services in the state. This is an example of a small state investment with a huge um, impact on the local level direct to families. And Emma, do you want to talk a little bit? Yeah, additionally, New Hampshire has made major investments in building out the children's behavioral health system of care. Um, a system of care is a behavioral health care approach that relies on a coordinated network of effective community-based services and supports with a broad, broad array of individualized services, which help children and youth function to better, better at home, in school, in the community, and throughout life. Um, one of the most recent improvements in the implementation is the implementation of mobile crisis teams for children so they can get treatment and support directly to them in their homes or schools. Um, and this has uh, reduced the amount of children who are in our emergency rooms uh, seeking treatment. Yeah. So I think like in response to the report that was issued from UNH, we really have to dig deep down into what we're doing right as a state and invest there and continue to create sustainable plans into the future. You know, one of the things that you've all touched on in, in some way 
is uh, the uh, inequality of access to some of these uh, opportunities uh, to uh, a certain baseline of services, or at least relatively easy access to those services. Uh, some of it sounds geographic. Uh, I'm guessing some of it's socioeconomic as well. Um, where do you see some of these greatest inequities in access to the kind of services you've just described? I'll go first with that. Um, I think that there's a huge difference between our urban and rural areas within the state. Um, you overlay the challenges of lack of transportation, um, lower income um, relative to families, um, and then it becomes even more desperate, the, the differences between what families have access to. Um, and I think that you know, you'd have to go down and look at the county maps. We have some from 2019. I wish we had some updated ones to look at um, a, a, a selection of um, data markers that would indicate the challenges that families face. There's a huge difference even in um, the median income for uh, single parent households when that a single parent is a woman versus when that single parent is a man. In some counties, that can be about $20,000 a year. So um, it is regional uh, to some degree. There is a difference between urban and rural. Um, and, you know, it, it takes looking down um, at each county to determine how the state should be investing funds to kind of bridge the gap in the inequalities that exist. Yeah. And some of the, um, the, you know, the work that the Children's Trust, uh, as Rebecca had mentioned earlier, as the backbone facilitating organization, some of our work has really highlighted, you know, what we call service gaps. In fact, I was just in a conversation with friends of Mascoma to look at this kind of geographic expanse. And, you know, we're looking at Grafton, Canaan and the towns there around. And to be able to, to commute to Lebanon to do a parents group or to, to look for referral services, to look for childcare in light of a housing crisis, you know, in, in light of, a, of a, a pandemic that really forced a lot of social isolation on us as a people, you know, these shadow areas of service gaps, um, they're really kind of emerging as places that we can kind of, you know, put our attention. Milford is a perfect example. Um, Joel Martin out of Milford Thrives has started another 51C3 there to really survey uh, the needs of the community and understand, you know, how they identify what they're looking at. And, you know, if you go up to the North Country as well, that social isolation and just making sure you're connecting to the resources that already exist uh, and how do you connect? How do you identify? And if you do have some sort of cultural aversion, like I said, to help seeking, how can we really dispel those, you know, that, that stigma that we put on these services so we can say, look, parenting is challenging. To be a parent is isolating and we all need help sometimes, and we all play a role. So I think those are some of the things that uh, you know we're seeing emerge at the Children's Trust. One of the things that also came out of that uh, Carsey study, it's something that we've seen for many years in public policy, my own time as a candidate and an office holder, is the central role that uh, local public schools typically play in obviously not just providing kids uh, a great start to life with strong education. It also acts as sort of a chief organizing agent for a community. It's often the place where increasingly a lot of kids get their meals, right? It's, their, it's the place they can feel they can get at least a guaranteed couple of meals a day. It's where they can often feel the safest. 
and uh, identify adult role models in a best-case scenario. There's many benefits, and increasingly, it seems, schools are being asked to do far more than simply reading, writing, and arithmetic, uh, and to help fill in some of these gaps in the social safety net, particularly in the lower half of, uh, of the income scale. But what we're also seeing, and we've seen this in prior episodes, we've talked about it, is a lot of attacks, frankly, on local public education in policy over the last several years, combined with a, a steep drop in the number of kids in New Hampshire overall. So there's a lot of these factors that seem to be threatening the ability of local public schools to play that central role at a time when there seems to be a lot of pressure for them to play these roles. I don't know, uh, in each of your roles, uh, are you finding that additional pressure in the face of fewer resources uh, impacting your ability to work with young families because of these challenges to schools? You know, um, we don't uh, do specific um, school funding advocacy, although we're involved and coordinated with those groups. And I'll have to say that I think that the state, again, needs to take a look and assessment on um, whether we know the way in which we fund um, public education is inequitable. Um, You know, we understand that different um, districts have access to resources that other districts will not. So I think when you ask that question around um, expanding sort of the responsibility of a school district and um, intervening and helping children, um, you're going to get a different answer depending on the district that you um, you're talking to or what around whether or not they feel overtaxed. I think the pandemic made every school district Mm. feel overtaxed. Um, But, you know, I'll have Emma speak a little bit about the interconnected with um, children's mental health um, with schools. You know, I think schools want to serve children in the best way that they can. They want to be able to refer families to the services that they need. Um, But the question is, you know, are we as a state really prioritizing public education or not? Um, I was going to speak a little later about one of the downsides of the pandemic with regard to advocacy around these issues is that there's been a narrowing of the perspective that is being um, and the stories that are being told in the legislature about what families need and want, especially when it comes to public education. Um, I am all for a diverse um, access for kids and families, um, but to some degree, I think we see a pushback from the pandemic um, with regard to how people are talking and thinking about what the public school education should be. Um, as a mom to two little to kids and a second grader, I am all for anything that my school can help me with, um, with regard to access to services, education, um, summer camp, um, all of those things. Um, good communication between district and parents is really important too. Um, but you know, there is their cultural differences in um, what individuals think. And I don't know, um, Emma, if you want to talk a little bit about behavioral health at all. Yeah, with um, schools, facing all of the challenges uh, from the pandemic, there's definitely been a sense of a shift from how schools are working with families. Um, I think there are a lot of great educators out there that kids really turn to as a trusted adult outside of the home. And that's a really important role for those educators to take because kids can approach them with things that they may not feel comfortable approaching their parents about. And we're seeing almost a tension between educators and parents now at the state level, um, which is a little concerning because we know that kids do best when parents and teachers are working together in tandem for the benefit of the kids. So I think looking towards the end of this session and into next session, and just generally, um, if we can start bridging that gap between parents and teachers um, that has been kind of 
tense since the pandemic started and a little bit before as well. I think the, the benefit of children's behavioral health in schools will improve it drastically. I also think that with the implementation of some programs in schools across New Hampshire, particularly um, MTSSB, which is a multi-tiered system of supports for kids, um, kids are able to benefit at a much greater, uh, in a much greater way than they had been if those systems hadn't been implemented. And so even though we've seen some regression in kids' behavioral supports during the pandemic when they weren't physically in a school. Um, we're seeing that with schools that have these systems of support in place, kids are able to bounce back and be more resilient in a much faster and uh, age-appropriate behavioral. I just wanted to jump on that anecdotally as a father myself, mm. a six-year-old um, and a three-year-old as well. I think what that pandemic really did is it drew a laser focus on that particular system in just how integrated into the other systems and other supports that are in the community. And, you know, in the, in the shadow or the absence of that system itself, where, you know, kids were learning at home, uh, you know, I had to tuck myself in a side room so not to, you know, bother my son as he was learning. And those behavioral health challenges that Emma mentioned, you know, we're experiencing them firsthand. And what it has caused now, because we have a, a child who's, you know, trying to get in into kindergarten and function as a six-year-old, you know, sometimes does, sometimes doesn't, uh, we're finding that there is a real receptiveness. And again, I say this anecdotally, because this is some of the work that we do is to co help connect systems to other systems that act as a continuum of care across the lifespan, which of course starts at birth, childcare, through the schools, and so on and so forth. And in our case, our family's case, what we're realizing is this notion of community in the high function that team, quote unquote, your child's team, your team as a caregiver, kind of, and how that transcends systems and how critical that is, there's a receptiveness there for, uh, I think, deeper investment, to my mind, deeper connectivity, because we're learning that, you know, we just hit a crisis point. And as we walk back from crisis to intervention, back from intervention to prevention, we understand just how overlapping all of these systems are and how critical they are to a successful New Hampshire, a functioning New Hampshire in all of its manifestations. And this includes economic, you know, our economic stability, our look in terms of being a leading state and, you know, culturally and so on and so forth. So I wanted to put that out there because, you know, like I said, anecdotally, but then these are real learnings across that system. And I, I, I see a real receptiveness, especially as the healthcare transcends into school care, transcends into, you know, family resource centers and all of the resources that are available on the community level. You have all at some point already touched on this topic, and I do want to take a moment uh, because of the explosion on the scene, awareness dealing with mental health, particularly uh, young people's mental health. And, and I say this as the father of two daughters who are almost 17 and almost 19, uh, the mental health of our younger girls, uh, the explosion in everything from uh, diagnosed mental health disorders, uh, suicide uh, ideations and attempts across the board has exploded. Obviously, there it's not a, a single uh, factor, uh, social media, uh, but also it seems the pandemic has accelerated trends uh, and maybe exposed them in a way that is, has created a crisis in, in families across the socioeconomic spectrum. 
and you've all touched on it in some way. And so I guess I'd like you to talk about it directly for a moment. In the work that you've been doing, are you finding that mental health services, uh, connecting them to uh, the other parts of their life, other services, has this exploded in your personal and professional work in a way that the data suggests nationally we're seeing everywhere? Yeah. Um, I'll speak first around early childhood and maternal mental health. So um, as you may or may not know, it's Maternal Mental Health Awareness Week. So prime time to be talking about this. Um, Even before the pandemic, we had been advocating for more connected systems um, prenatally and for moms with young children to ensure that we were identifying postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, and ensuring uh, prevention or intervention early so that we don't have impacts later on with um, mother's maternal health, child's uh, child's mental health. um, And, you know, eventually, in some cases, it touches on our child welfare system. Um, So we have been advocating for home visiting programs. Understanding infant and child mental health is vastly important. Understanding that New Hampshire does have some investments in infant and child mental health is also really important. Um, You know, I think, as you said, it's been an explosion of identification of problems that have existed forever. Um, Now we just have the the terms to define it. And we do know the tools that help um, with intervention and to make, you know, children and families um, thriving and be able to stay together. Um, Emma, do you want to speak a little bit in the system of care? Yeah, the system of care has been really integral to ensuring that kids who can be treated in their communities um, stay in their communities and get treatment there. And that's been really helpful. But as you so aptly noted, the pandemic has created what's called a mental health crisis across the country, and we're definitely feeling those ramifications in New Hampshire. So even though we have the system of care in place, um, kids are still needing emergency services for psychiatric distress. And so it's really important that we keep investing in these um, community resources. So the mobile crisis I mentioned earlier, um, and also other types of services that kids can receive through schools or in their communities. Kids tend to do better when they are treated at home so that they have the supports of their families and their friends and their schools with them at all times. In those rare circumstances where kids do need to go into the emergency room, unfortunately, the reality for them um, is that a lot of them have to wait in the emergency room for days at a time in order to get a bed at a facility that can treat their mental health crisis. So I think another area for improvement in New Hampshire would be to invest in resources that allow for faster transitions from the emergency room, acute distress where they are triaged there, and then moving them into a more therapeutic environment. I think also the... um removing the stigma around mental health um, is key and that starts early. So coordination and connection with our um, childcare centers. um, That's why Emma and I and Nathan, we work so well and in such good coordination together because it's really understanding that um, the more we talk about it um, and the more that we begin to lift up the resources within the communities, we break down that stigma around um, mental illness um, and particularly around children's mental health um, because I think that that is an area that is um, it's difficult for parents to understand. And then you imagine being in a moment of crisis, you need to um, intervene for that child, but also that family uh, needs supports as well. 
Yeah, I am so glad you brought this up because I, I had the good fortune recently of interviewing three mothers at TLC in Claremont, which is the Family Resource Center there around perinatal depression um, for our own podcast, uh, Shameless Plug, New Hampshire Family there you go. Now. And uh, they had said, uh, you know, uh, Karen Jameson there, who is the nurse practitioner, had said prior to the pandemic, you know, those folks suffering from perinatal depression or postpartum was about one in five. Uh, during the pandemic, that number narrowed to about one in three. And then I look over the, you know, my, into my own life and I say, that's about right. But though it feels like more like two and three, because most um, young mothers that I, or mothers that I know ha had been struggling with this again, given that extreme isolation. And um, not long ago, I also talked to Joe Ripson over at the state uh, DCYF, um, about this acknowledgement of the pool that is community services and how that runs right into those kind of deep end of the pool intervention services in this realignment of how we look at it as kind of like a zero entry pool, right? Where you've got these community services that you've got this very shallow entry. And of course there's the deep end. And if we're in the deep end and underwater, we're too late, but just how critical that shallow end is, um, as Emma mentioned, just, you know, kids respond better when those services are provided in that at-home environment, like the Healthy Families New Hampshire, Healthy Families America. Um, Dr. Merrick, the president and CEO of PCA America, um, had come out to talk about the fact that, you know, uh, young teen moms who are enrolled in a home visiting program are seven times more likely to complete one year of college. Now think about the economic impact of that. Not only are we talking about things like prevention of abuse and neglect, but we're talking about economic successes. How does that you know, then inspire a whole generation or for generational change for economic success? And then how does that you know, kind of transfer to the state? These are massive movements there. And there's a lot of, you know, a silver lining to to be considered when we look at what this pandemic has caused us to reevaluate and connect. It's a great point. And, and one of the things that comes out of the conversation so far, if I look back even a generation ago, uh, when I was first getting involved in politics in New Hampshire, if you got asked a question about family friendliness, you know, as I say, as an office holder or candidate, what will you do? There was kind of a, a, a stock answer. And it basically said, oh, well, your kids' schools are going to be great. We're going to make sure we got enough police presence to keep, you know, keep your roads safe and, uh, and preventative health care in terms of routine checkups. And that was, by and large, the, the pillars of it. And, of course, those remain the case on some level. But you're touching in this, in this uh, podcast on this very much wider array of topics that get into uh, a much newer and more sophisticated and nuanced definition of a family-friendly community, a family-friendly state or environment. Uh, in, uh, on the mental health, I feel compelled because so many people, I think, are dealing with this. One of my uh, my girls is currently uh, battling in a mental health crisis. And, it's, and when we were first, as parents, sort of faced with this, we were told that by far, and I think, Nathan, you mentioned this, uh, the the most effective form of therapy long term for long term success was um, FBT family based therapy, which a generation ago they tried to keep the family sort of away from the the child and let the experts take over, and they realized that as you were saying 
having the family uh, as an integral part of recovery is uh, just much more successful as they've learned. And it's much safer and fulfilling for the family and for the child. And so you get told that as somebody who's not an expert in psychiatry or recovery. And you come home and all of a sudden the word family hits you right in the face. This is an integral part of family friendliness is the ability to kind of surround families, especially those that don't have the resources, with the ability to address what the best practices are like that family based therapy. It's a very intimidating uh, situation, I think, for a lot of households. And I think that for office holders, listening to folks like you three who are looking at this in different ways every day, this is how we have to redefine, expand that definition, get more sophisticated about what family friendliness in a community actually means. Um, And I guess one question I'd have as we prepare to close out is what should policymakers, office holders, What should they be thinking about that they maybe aren't thinking about so much that is part of the defining of family friendliness in New Hampshire? What are we completely missing out to get that full suite uh, into the picture? Um, That's an excellent question. And I think, you know, I think the thing that I'd I'd love for folks to know and and office holders to consider is that generally uh, um, that, you know, the well-being of the family follows the economic well-being of a state. A recent study came out of Wisconsin uh, that reiterated a fact that a negative earning shock of 30% or more increases the likelihood of division of children, youth, and families involvement in a family by 20%. Now, if we think about that, Think, and we think about COVID and we think about inflation as it, you know, still here. We think about rising housing costs. In my household alone, our earning shock has been at least that, right? Now, these are obviously kind of negative factors, but there's something to consider as well. That very same study cites that that effect uh, is diminished or becomes insignificant when earnings decline is compensated by receipt of benefits. Now, when we talk about benefits, a lot of times in the business community, there's kind of a recoiling because it's like, all right, so we've got greater economic investment we have to make into our um, our employee and staff, which for not for you know not all uh, businesses will you know perhaps recoil at that. But what I want folks to know is we are talking about receipt of. Uh, resources that already exist in the community. When we think about family resource centers and other family serving agencies that can help offset these earnings shocks by way of fuel assistant, you know, connection to either transportation, food banks, a lot of these family resource centers have diaper banks, formula banks. We can start to think about how our community can help those businesses absorb those benefits and the receipt of benefits for their employees so that those employees can maintain their productivity, their wellness, their happiness, the wellness of their families. And if you have that, then you have an environment that is quote unquote family friendly. You have an environment that is going to be more nurturing for the children in that home. You're then going to have, because we know that brains are built, not born, you're going to have children that are going to be developing social emotional competencies uh, earlier on and be able to help that family, contribute to that family and become productive members. So I would reiterate that and to look at the resources that do in fact exist already and find it in, you know, in the legislature, in its will to further and more deeply invest in those things so we can connect the dots here. Great. 
Yeah, you know, um, I think most importantly, lawmakers need to understand the unique challenges that are facing families in New Hampshire today. Um, I said it before, but there's often just a lack of family voice at the legislature because, quite frankly, it is difficult to fit advocacy in when you're raising children and you're working um, and you add COVID restrictions and everything else on top of that. Um, this really results in a narrower presentation of the challenges, needs, and solutions that lawmakers should consider in um, legislation and policy decisions. Here at New Futures, we try and lift up family voice. Um, I, I really do think that um, we still face many challenges because there remains a generational, cultural, oh. and political divide in beliefs around how and why we as a state should invest in programs which, which support children and families. Often the impacts or return on investment, we love to use that word, is further down the road, and thus it's harder to win actual space in our budget every two years. However, we know um, that the failure to prioritize children and families will ultimately negatively impact the state's economy and health, whether that's from our, you know, slowly decreasing child population, the lack of influx of families moving to our state. Um, but, you know, we at New Futures, we really believe that the advocate voice is powerful. And I actually think it's the only thing that will help us overcome the divide to ensure that New Hampshire, all of New Hampshire's children are healthy, thriving well now into the future. Makes a lot of sense. And it's probably a good place to end for today. And obviously, uh, we're going to encourage our listeners uh, to uh, to reach out to their lawmakers and to spread this message. I mean, this is central. And as the report today, again, from UNH's Carsey Institute uh, suggests, this is something with generational impact uh, and, and something we all need to be concerned, regardless of what our family structure might look like in our homes right now. Uh, so I want to take the time to thank you all. Uh, Emma Savini and Rebecca Wojtkowski, both from New Futures. Thank you both uh, very much for taking time today to share this information uh, with our listeners. Thank you so much. And I'll just uh, do one shameless plug, plug because Nathan did it. Go for um, it. But if you want a list of the full bills that New Futures supports that are family-friendly support um, children, maternal health, children's behavioral health, um, check us out at new-futures.org. Oh, I love shameless plugs. Uh, speaking of which, I also want to thank you, Nathan. You you really got in there with the shameless plug earlier, which uh, you get my big respect for that. Nathan Fink from New Hampshire Children's Trust. Thank you so much, Nathan, for being here today as well. It's my pleasure. And for the record, shameless plug is my middle name. <laughs> <laughs> This has been Granite State Matters episode on making New Hampshire more family-friendly with Nathan Fink, Emma Savini, and Rebecca Wojtkowski. On our next episode, we'll be discussing New Hampshire's housing crisis. You can follow our bi-weekly podcast at your favorite podcast provider and share it with friends and neighbors. Because extremists are taking over the statehouse, and what you don't know can hurt you. Thanks for listening.